Mostly Unscripted, your, uh, your podcast to hear two guys just talk about complex ideas and give you new ways of communicating uh, in this crazy, crazy upside down world. This is Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm good, Paul. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm living the dream. I'm in, uh, I'm in Texas right now and it's overcast and I think next week it's going to get up to like 150. So I'm, oh, nice. I'm super yeah. excited for that. Get to experience a taste of freedom down there in the great land of Texas, huh? <laughs> that's right. Every, every, that's what everyone talks about down here, which I love. I absolutely love Texas. Yeah. How's, uh, <laughs> how's your week going? Uh, it's, it's going well. I, uh, I'm pretty excited. I have my, uh, my fake mask is arriving today, which, Ooh. you know, it's a, it's a mesh face mask that you, you wear. And uh, apparently it covers the, uh, you know, nose and mouth covering requirements of most uh, localities with, while still allowing you to breathe. So uh, <laughs> that's a plus. It's yeah, nice I'm, to breathe. Yeah. So I'm, I'm anxiously uh, watching the mailbox to see for the, po- the postman to show up so I can get that out and uh, take my first trip out to the grocery store wearing my face fake mask. Oh, I love it. I yeah. love it. Now, have you seen the TikTok videos or, or, uh, where, where the guy's got the, the mask on and it looks like a, he, he doesn't have a mask on or it's pulled down? Oh, no, I haven't seen those. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, I mean, this we, we've reached a stage in the pandemic where this is what people have resorted to. <laughs> right. but this, this guy's a fake mask. Kind of the, the, the flesh tone of the mask kind of matches his face. And it's it's actually a picture of him with the mask pulled down. Oh, that's so, funny. Yeah. yeah. So then he gets to go around and people people get to shame him. I think I think mask shaming is, is the sport of uh, 2021. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the... Uh the main 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 mode of exercise for all the Karens out there, I think. Uh, well, I we, think, we, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think the best mask I've seen is just one that simply says "fuck you, Fauci." <laughs> <laughs> wow, 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 uh, Mr. Fauci. He's uh, well. I'm not gonna give opinions on Mr. Fauci today. Uh, I do like the name, though. I mean, I, I'll be honest. If I had to choose a Bond villain, I'm pretty sure Fauci would <laughs> yeah. be in the top three list, Dr. right? Doctor Fauci. Yeah, I Dr. can just Fauci. see him sitting there stroking his little white Persian cat. You know, That's that right. maniacal laughter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, he's a perfect, uh, perfect character for Spectre. So, yeah, well, maybe, uh, when we uh, get into Hollywood and start writing scripts, there we go. We've got our perfect villain villain. That's right. That's right. Job number two, job number two. (laughs) All right. Um, yeah, so, so we're excited to have this conversation today. We're going to be talking about something I I know everyone's talking about. Uh, it's going to be Bitcoin. And, uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic for both of us because we, we're both interested in financial freedom and liberty and allowing people to live their lives with the least amount of control. And, um, there's a lot of aspects of this conversation. I think they're going to lean into that. They also have to do with psychology and economics. So I think it's, it's going to be a really interesting topic. We're not going to be going into price. We're not going to be talking about the, the technicals or uh, the, you know, how to actually make investments. That's, that's not today. Uh, this is going to be more on the background, on the philosophy. So I think the, the questions we're going to be asking ourselves is uh, just really sort of the high level, the first principles that we can get to. So things like, do we need it? Uh, what, can, what conditions are needed uh, for crypto to be adopted? Um, and yeah, I, I mentioned Bitcoin, but I think we could talk about the crypto ecosystem at large. Uh, risks to its adoption. What do those look like? Uh, and then just, I think, some other kind of ideas. So things like is uh, the, the blockchain innovation, what does it mean for society? Is it useful or isn't it? 
um, the difference between the, the adoption rates, you know, for governments uh, versus versus individuals. So that's that's really what we're going to be talking about today. I think it's going to be a great conversation, and, and really, I think uh, going forward, how we're looking to pivot some of these conversations into more of the first principles, uh, really trying to get to the to the um, the ideas behind the idea. So uh, before we get started answering some of those questions, uh, we'd love for you to join us, uh, join us, and subscribe uh, to our mentally unscripted. Uh, YouTube channel where you can find us where we're going to be posting new clips and, and episodes. Right now it's audio only. Uh, at some point we, we're going to be looking to, to make some videos, but uh, where it's full, <laughs> you can see our pretty faces, but for now it's audio. Uh, and if you're not there, uh, find us wherever else you're listening to podcasts. If it's on uh, Apple, iTunes, or if it's on Spotify, check us out. Uh, leave some comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, obviously, mentallyunscripted.com is another place you can find us. So we're, we're in many places. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'd love for you to come join the conversation and um, let us know what you're thinking. So Yeah. And uh, we're just waiting on Paul to get a haircut to start doing the video. So uh, I think maybe we should set up a GoFundMe to uh, <laughs> get you the get you the yeah. money you need for that haircut. I looked into it and it was it was a little over the price restriction. It was just so high because the amount of uh, amount of hair I've got going on right now, it's, it's starting to look scary. It's, uh, you know, the 60s called and they want the haircut back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, little, a little bad. But uh, you know what? The nice thing is in 2021, I can still blame COVID. <laughs> exactly. Well, you're in Texas now, though. So that's, that's true. Yeah, yeah you, that's, you can you can go get a haircut and a beard trim without having to worry about anything. That's right. I, I can't get the same mileage as I could in other places. Yeah. Too bad I don't live in Chicago, I suppose. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So let's let's get this uh, this conversation started. So um, so Bitcoin, it's all over the news. It's been around for over 10 years. Um, even if you don't have any exposure to it and you don't understand it, you know the name. Uh, you know, it's often called a, a, a digital currency, a, a cryptocurrency. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people, their exposure to it is going to be looking uh, at the news and, and they're going to be hearing about the price and going up and going down. You have these crashes, you have these crazy rises. And so uh, their, their first exposure to it is just that, right? It's just an investment. Um, but there's, there's another side to it. There's the history of it. And it's a question of, of, do we need it, right? Do we actually need, uh, whatever it's offering? And, you know, I, I guess when I think about that question, do we need this sort of new asset? Do we need this, this crypto? It, it, it you know, kind of takes back some layers and you're asking, well, what exactly is it, right? What exactly is, is Bitcoin? And so, you know, my, my thinking of it, is that it's an innovative technology for storing value in the digital space, right? It's, it, you know, some people call it digital money. They may call it digital gold. They may call it something else. But it's, it's an innovation that combines a series of technologies, cryptology, uh, distributed processing, um, private key, public key infrastructure. Uh, and it, it combines those all into a, a, a program uh, that then allows you to have a tradable piece of, of value, right? Uh, now, there's there's a lot of layers below that, uh, but I, I'm not sure it's worth getting more into that necessarily uh, today just because I think a lot of the audience, either they're really going to already be very well aware of some of the technicals 
uh, the, t- the technology below it, or they're going to be so new to it. They've only seen the price that the, the technology isn't really where they're going. So th- that to me in a nutshell is, is what it is. It's, it's the first ever way of having uh, value on the internet that's not duplicative, that you can't just duplicate and you can't just replicate. Um, there's a cost to doing that. And um, d- do you think that is a, a decent description of what it is? I think so. Uh, Bitcoin, it, it's an interesting anomaly to me. Or, or I don't know if anomaly, it's an interesting creature to me. Um, for all the reasons that you said, it's it's an amalgamation of several different technologies that has grown up to allow us to yeah, create a store of value in a digital world. Uh, up until now, you know, our stores of value, for the most popular being gold, you, you had to deal with the physical aspects of gold. You had to find a place to store it. You had to make sure that where you were storing it was trustworthy. You had to deal with storage fees. And with Bitcoin, a lot of that is gone. I I think some of the exchanges still charge maybe some fees um, for storage, possibly. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, I've started moving all of mine off to a, a hardware wallet. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but still, you, you, you don't have to necessarily worry about a government or someone coming along and confiscating your Bitcoin uh, if you take the proper precautions. Whereas gold, it, it, yeah, that's a little less reliable. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's so from those aspects, I think it's really interesting. And I know it, like early on, Bitcoin, it it kind it had a stigma around it. And I guess it still does to a certain extent, but it had a stigma because of the Silk Road marketplace. Um, Bitcoin was used by drug dealers and criminals as a, a way to exchange money. Uh, but it's it's really moving into the mainstream now. A lot of yeah. websites are accepting Bitcoin. Um, there was at one point, I don't know if it's still around, but there was a website where you could actually use your Bitcoin to purchase stuff off of Amazon. Uh, which I thought was a, which is an innovative idea. I thought it was great. So mm-hmm. we're moving in that direction, but there's a lot yeah. of questions behind it. And I, I look at it in two aspects, and I think you alluded to this. Right? There's the investment medium of exchange side. There's the philosophy side. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's good to, at least with this first, I imagine we're going to have several podcasts discussing cryptos and Bitcoin because there's just so much to discuss. Yeah. I think starting off with the philosophy is a good foundation uh, to jump right. off from. Yeah, and I, I I find that so interesting. And whenever uh, I've been around the space for a long time, so you know, my background was in uh, when I was a corporate consultant was in banking, specifically in payments. So we were meeting with with banks that were interested in understanding what crypto could do for them, and what we found frequently was that they there was a control mechanism where they would ask well how, how can we how can we control more of the processing that's that's performed or the the transfer and the movement of of value and you you find when you investigate the cryptos that they're actually a replacement in many ways for services that are offered by banks today uh, and and so there's a there's a competition with existing uh, financial services in, in some regard, and so that that, that kind of takes you back. So so the the history of this is is really interesting. And my understanding is that for the last 50, 60 years, that there's been um, cryptographers, 
I would say, um, libertarian-oriented people, uh, technologists, uh, politically, I would say, activists type of people, information privacy activists that have been looking for ways in which they could create the privacy and the freedom um, on the internet, right, uh, or in the technology space. And so, obviously, if it's going back 50, 60 years, um, you, you, it's you know pre pre the internet that we know today. But they they saw this coming, um, and so you you had these uh, you had things like cryptology that was coming out after World War II, and it was an evolving science. And that there were some of these people that sort of broke out and said, "Well, we think that private citizens deserve to have privacy." And so that's that's the origins of cryptology, um, at least from a private perspective. And there was years in which uh, they were fighting against the the federal government to be able to have this this technology accessible to private citizens. And um, over time, the the, the government uh, sort of lost the fight for the citizens to have it, uh, at least in the in the way in which the technology would be out out at large. So you had sort of that moving, which was a privacy movement. Uh, for your information. Then at the same time, you saw people that were looking for a financial system that would sit uh, and run in parallel with what the financial systems are offered by governments. So if you're in the Bitcoin space, you'll often hear people talk about fiat money. Um, usually as they use it as a pejorative, get, get poor with your fiat. And, and really fiat is just a dollar, right? It's a, it's a government-backed uh, currency uh, that... Um, <clears throat> That it's it's because it's backed by guns or uh, the threat of government punishment or sanctions, it has its value, uh, or that that's sort of the origin of its value, right? And it's not the only uh, origin. I mean, when you hear when you start talking about uh, cryptocurrencies, you start talking about Bitcoin. What you find is value. We, we have these definitions, and they they're a little bit more malleable than most people want to realize. You, you, you actually take 100 people and ask them what value is, and you'll get many, many different answers. Uh, and that's probably a good thing. But to bring it back, there were, there were people that were trying to create this system uh, that would exist outside of the fiat system. And why would they do that? Well, you know, just I think like the privacy act, act, uh, activists that said, listen, we, we citizens... Uh, people deserve their their privacy. It, it should be a fundamental right. There were people that felt the same way about uh, monetary systems, that governments have objectives for what they want to do with the monetary system, and individuals' objectives may not always be in line. So by having something that could exist outside of that, that where it would be more aligned to the interest of citizens, then it would serve that population better. And that that's kind of this idea that uh, comes from Austrian economics of sound money or hard money that it's not going to be devalued or debased with bad monetary policy. So you kind of bring those two together, combined with the spreading and decentralization of the internet, and people start to say, "Listen, we can we can build this together. We can have uh, technologies that give us uh, the, the the financial kind of outlet." That's sitting on the internet and with the technology, it's using cryptology as a tool to actually, uh, and we, we could get into that, but Bitcoin is, is, and that's just one of hundreds of thousands of, of currencies that it's, it's anonymous or pseudonymous, but it's not actually anonymous. You can see everything on the blockchain. 
Um, and you know, you don't really have true privacy. In fact, if anything, you're giving some of that up to, to, you know, provide access to, to use that network. Um, but it's, it's, I think that's kind of the origin is people saying, listen, citizens can have something and, and the internet enables it. It's an engine of giving individuals freedom that you couldn't have before that the government can't easily take away. Um, and you know, and when I ask the question, do we need it? I think the answer is, is no. I think though, fundamentally we want it, right? You could exist in a system where, uh, we don't have that at all. There's, there's fewer degrees of freedom. Uh, you don't have access to your money in the same way. We have no privacy. Uh, the government tells you exactly how to spend and when to spend. You, you, you could look at, you know, ant colonies and bee, beehives and, and look at the way in which they operate. You could operate that way, right? I don't want that. I don't like that. I, I like the idea that individuals have more freedom. Citizens have more freedom. So I want it. Um, and I think, I think if you look at the, the economics of these, of these tools, it's, uh, it's highly valuable, uh, particularly at a time when we're seeing, and, and we know this, MMT, uh, a change in thought at the government level of how they want to spend money, that we have an alternative um, as citizens uh, and not just the, the, the traditional alternatives of equities and bonds and other types of financial assets that um, I think they have their own problems. So what, what do you think, Scott? Do you, do you think that we, we need it, that we want it? Is it some combination thereof? Well, first off, I have to say that was, I think, a great summary. Uh, you're much more far, or you're much farther down the Bitcoin rabbit hole than I am. Uh, I'm, I'm down there so, with my rabbits. That's right. <laughs> right. So, um, so I, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, as to the question of do we need it, the first thing that my answer before you had, before you had your little soliloquy there was would have been yes, we do need it, um, and I think it comes down to how we define need. Uh, so I guess from a very technical first principle aspect, do we need it in order to go to the grocery store in order to pay our rent? No, we don't need it. But I think from a Liberty perspective, we do need it, you know? And so maybe some people would just define that as a want. We want it because we want Liberty. Um, Given my feelings on Liberty is something that is a right to all of us. um, I think we do need it. I think we need a system that will allow us to separate from government as much as possible uh, especially when we're seeing uh, our shift away from our traditional model of Congress making laws, the president enforcing them, the judiciary uh, interpreting them now to a point where Congress is abdicating a lot of its responsibility to create laws and it's allowing the president to do it through executive order. Uh, so we're, we're moving into this area where one man is really being given a lot of authority. And that's concerning to me. And I think it should be concerning to everyone. So any any technology that comes up that allows us to separate from that system to any degree is is something that we need. Mm. Now, if you're someone who doesn't feel like we need liberty, if you're the type of person who would be willing to give up their liberty and security or liberty in exchange for security and in, in exchange for a strong central government, right? Your opinion may be different. You may not think we need it. In fact, you may think that Bitcoin is an evil. Um, like I mentioned earlier, right? It, it, Bitcoin started off with a bit of a taint to it because of the way it was being used. Right. And I think there's still a lot of people who would see that even if 
even if you're using Bitcoin to just make legal transactions or you're using it as a store of value, I think because it's outside of the purview of the government, some folks out there are going to view it as as an anti-government, evil, militia-backed, militia-based type uh, mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in a rambling way, I, <laughs> I say we do need it. Yeah. Um, but I think it comes down to just how you define need. Sure. I, I completely agree. And I, I think there's the the aspect that if we don't need liberty and freedom, then why are we talking about human rights? Why do we have conversations about any aspects of society? That, that That's, that, you know, that's why I say, well, it, it, to me, it's a want, but that one is, is categorically aligned with what we currently see as needs. So it's, it's, well, and and I fully believe in, in liberty and that separation of the citizens from the government. And, and one of the aspects uh, or properties of Bitcoin and, and crypto at large that I found so fascinating when I went down that rabbit hole was the idea that you would provide competition to the monetary systems provided by governments um, in a way that simply you never could uh, without the internet. Uh, I think I think the 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 advent of these technologies is giving us a fuller view of what the internet does to society um, as we virtualize and digitize our worlds and our lives. Um, and, and it's only just begun. I mean, we have thousands of years in a non-digital space and we've got really, we don't even have all of the global population being digital. Uh, we have maybe 80% of it that's using digital on a regular basis. Uh, and so we're, we're just at the beginning of that starting point for society. And, um, you know, the, the internet gives us an amazing way to equalize the power of governments, uh, in a, in a profound way. And I think having monetary sovereignty, that's, it's, it's part of that. It's part of that bargain that we, that we need. So, uh, no, I, I, when I say need or want, I, I, it's it's almost hard to distinguish. But you know, as I said, you could always organize differently. I just think you'd have worse outcomes. Exactly. I think. Um, again, it's I think it's just semantics. Yeah. The question of want versus need. Yep. Uh, and I think, to me, again, being fairly new to looking at Bitcoin, I mean, I'll admit that I never got much into it because I fell in the camp of it's a bunch of ones and zeros. How can it have value? Mm-hmm. Um, but since I've, since we discussed doing this podcast and since I've started talking to you about it and I've done more reading on Bitcoin, uh, I've, I've flipped. I think it's something that we should support just not necessarily for the, um, the investment aspect of it, for the store value aspect of it, but because of the philosophical, the, the philosophical aspect, mm-hmm. uh, I think that we need to support anything that gives us a decentralized uh, alternative to a government monetary system. And right. I think that's important because in one aspect, like you said, it, it, it could help to keep the government a little bit more honest. Right. Um, and we, you know, we did a couple episodes on MMT and we talked about the need for, you know, the, the benevolent rulers in Washington to actually monitor, manage that system appropriately <laughs> and not manage it for their own benefit. Right. Well, they might be a little more 
aware of what they're doing, they might be a little bit more accountable if they know that people can just start getting out of dollars and moving into Bitcoin. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know exactly how that mechanism would work. I haven't thought about it that deeply yet, but I, I can see that happening. And accountability is one one factor that we're sorely lacking in our current system. Yeah. You know, like we discussed, right? It's always easy for the politicians to point fingers at each other. Like, it it wasn't my policy that did it. My policy was great. It was this other person's policy who interfered or this other person wouldn't support me, you know? Right. You know, the Republicans are always pointing the finger at the Democrats. Democrats are pointing the finger at Republicans. You know, everybody's pointing at the finger at the billionaires, uh, you know? And in it all, the middle class and the lower class is just getting left on lurch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. and yeah, and so Bitcoin is this way for the middle class to participate in a system that, if the government were running it, would be controlled by politicians and bankers. Right. Yep. Yeah, and, and so let's let's give a little bit of airtime to the the challenge with the existing financial system. So what you what you see if you go and look at countries globally, and specifically the United States, is that most of those countries have high levels of debt. Most of those, uh, and, and we're talking about G20, right? So we're talking about uh, the large powers in the West and, and some in the East, less so Africa and less so South America, Central and South America. But they have large levels of debt. They have aging populations. They have uh, massive amounts of spending, low return on, on spending. If you look at the outcomes that they're getting for what, for the money that they put in. And you see that a lot of the, Governments are looking at ways in which they can move past the pandemic. So this is this inflection point for many of them as they as they try and get their their economies. Uh, either they're they're still trying to get through. How do we survive the tail end? I know we just saw you know some numbers go up in, in some countries like India um, go up pretty pretty high. Uh, but they're uh, so so. To, but to bring it to the economics, we we're at a, a not a great time for many of these countries where they're they're sitting economically, and so you're you're hearing these ideas about MMT is spending. Well, what happens to your your assets that are denominated in a fiat currency when governments are spending? And what what most people th- tend to think of, they think about inflation, right? Which is the the rate of money that's going into broader circulation, um, and and prices going up right as a result of that and so you'll hear you'll hear things like the federal reserve talk about wanting a two percent inflation rate well how they measure that is is a is a subject of debate uh whether or not two percent is the is the right number is is a is a topic of debate and um as as we talked about in our mmt episode many economists disagree on on what they're measuring whether or not it's accurate whether 2% is right and and because of that you you don't have a lot of agreement right on, on what that actually means for main street not wall street uh but you have another side of it that most people don't realize that uh, i'm just starting to understand a little bit better which is the debasement factor right which is where you as you're expanding the, the money supply, you can still have your CPI look one way. So your inflation is looking one way, but assets are being repriced as the money supply goes up. And so you're actually losing value in those assets. So if you own a home, you're saying, oh, great, my, the, the price of my home went up. Well, yeah, except for the, the value of those dollars went down, right? So 
And you're seeing that. And, and so that, that could be an explanation for what we're seeing at this particular moment, the rise of the stock market, the rise of, of home prices. Um, and, and I'll only be able to speak for the United States, but I, I'm literally in four or five different markets that I've participated in. We're seeing the craziest fervor for real estate that anybody has ever seen. And this is without the credit bubble that we saw in 2009. And, and people are just, uh, so example, I have a friend selling a home out in Phoenix. They listed a home or their friend listed a home for 685. They got an all cash offer of 800, right? And they had bought the house a year and a half previously for 545. So, um, what does that tell you? Well, a lot of people say, oh, I'm getting wealthier. Well, actually the, the, if you look at the M1 money supply, it's expanded so greatly that the value of those dollars is going down. So, well, what does that mean for, for Bitcoin or for crypto? Well, the, the Bitcoin, and I'll speak specifically to that, in its code, it has the inflation rate defined, right? And in its code, it, it, you have to have everyone in agreement to run the code. To, to uh, they, they all participate in that network and they all say, okay, well, that's the inflation rate. That's what we're going to agree to. And based on that inflation rate, uh, we'll all agree to, to participate in this system. And so uh, you can't change that inflation rate uh, because of other people's demands. Someone, someone could in that market say, "Well, listen, if we could, if we could bring that inflation rate down by by half a percent, we could increase the price of this asset." Well, I've got to get everybody else on the network to agree. Um, all the participants, all the people that just hold Bitcoin, anybody who's a miner, you have the developers that would actually have to develop the code. You have a, uh, you have all of these different actors that have to come in agreement for that. Now contrast that with what we just talked about where the, the government overnight has made decisions to just expand uh, the, the the balance sheet and what it's actually doing to our economy. So to go back to, do we need this? Do we want this? Um, I, I can't see of a, of a bigger time in history, in modern history, where an alternative to our existing system is needed. Um, as governments all over the world are going to be looking for ways to pump money into their economies, debasing fiat currencies. And it's not just, it's, it's, it's in, you know, probably leading to inflation at some point. It's debasing it, which is the, I think the, the little lie that MMTers don't want to talk about. Um, and, uh, or they don't seem to give enough airtime. At least I've never heard anybody talk about it. Um, that, that's the problem. And so that's what these these particularly now post COVID that you're seeing as a, as a value proposition for an alternative system, uh, it's it's needed. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because one thing, one idea that I've been twisting around in my mind since I've been uh, reading about Bitcoin and this debate versus it. A, def- a deflationary currency versus an inflationary currency is this idea of base rates. So the base rates model means that you can't always look at some number in isolation. You have to look at the base rate that applies to that model mm. or applies to that number. So right. you're right. You could be seeing the value of your house increase 5% over the course of a year. Right. And that that nominal dollar value that you see on your appraisal, your property appraisal form or whatever is now higher. And that makes you feel wealthier. But 
if the base rate or what you can buy with each dollar has gone up 10% or has gone down 10%, I should say, so that the the dollar now buys 10% less than what it did. And you can see how the actual value of your house has not increased. Right. Because each dollar that's in your house is worth is worth 10% less right. than what it was a year ago. Um, so you, you have to keep those base rates in mind. And I know that I probably just didn't explain that very well. So I'll put a link to um, a pretty good article on Farnham Street uh, discussing base rates. I'll put that in the show notes so folks can test it, can take a look at it. But the simple idea is, is that you can't always just look at when it comes to money, especially, you can't always just look at that dollar figure in isolation. You have to understand how that dollar figure is being reflected in the economy at large. And right. one way we do that is by looking at the purchasing power of a dollar. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, and I think, you know, this inflationary currency versus deflationary currency is, is pretty interesting. And the common held belief today is that we need inflation in the economy. You know, we need inflation in the economy because that's what keeps producers motivated to keep producing. So the argument goes, if you're making a widget and you're selling it for $5 and in a deflationary economy, that widget price goes down to $4, there's going to be less incentive for uh, the producers to keep producing those widgets because now, in theory, the argument goes, they're now making less profit. But what what isn't... Can, Excuse. Oh, let me back up. So there, in a deflationary economy, the argument is there would be less incentive to produce. Less incentive to produce means less need for employees, which means it would, unemployment would rise. There would be lower hiring. Um, there wouldn't be pay raises, that sort of thing. Whereas in an inflationary economy, if the price of that widget goes up from $5 to $5.50, now the producer or the manufacturer has an incentive to produce more, to expand capacity, to hire more people, and that's good for the economy. Uh, what that doesn't, what that argument doesn't take into consideration, though, is we're not talking about defla- deflation and inflation in isolation. Right. If if we're in a deflationary economy, everything's deflating. So even though the price of that widget goes from five dollars to four dollars, the price of all the inputs into that widget went down as well. Okay. And because those prices are going down, the the cost of labor is going down as well. So you need to look at it from a look at it more from a percentage. Like, what is your profit margin, yeah. not what are the absolute dollars of your profit? And I think that's that's where that, that argument fails. And one simple way that I've always looked at it is just ask yourself this. If you go to the grocery store and a loaf of bread costs a dollar now, today, and six months, six months from now you go to the grocery store and that same loaf of bread is a dollar five or 95 cents, right? Which would you prefer, right? You'd prefer <laughs> right. the 95 cents. Yeah. So let's just look at it reasonably like that. And right. this is one of the big arguments, uh, you know, around a hard currency versus a fiat currency, or is a, a hard currency or something that is not subject to rampant increases like Bitcoin is going to be more of a deflationary currency. Yeah. Whereas that over time as technology and processes improve and as we get better at producing things the costs are naturally going to come down which means the amount that you can buy with each bitcoin is going to increase and um that's that's a discussion that really gets lost in all of this sure and i know there's there's definitely a lot of a lot of folks out there who believe that 
deflationary currencies are much better for the economy as a whole because it it actually uh, incre- it creates the incentive to invest and to produce more. Um, whereas an inflationary currency, it, it creates the incentive to just consume. Right. right? So, uh, it, you know, you have a dollar today and you know that a year from now, that dollar is not going to be able to buy less. So you want to go ahead and spend it as quickly as you can. Right. So we don't have as much savings in the economy and we don't have as much investment in the economy. And the Austrians would argue savings and investment is what drives the economy. Sure. Whereas the, the Keynesians and the MMTers would argue that consumption is what drives the economy. Right. Yeah. And that's um, th- that actually, I think, is an interesting pivot point into what conditions are needed for crypto to be adopted, because uh, as I guess what we can talk about is sort of the, the main points of value here. Uh, but uh, when you talk about sort of the adherence to a, a political or economic philosophy, I think a lot of that feeds into uh, what what's needed for people to adopt something that's so strange relative to what we've had historically. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you know, we, we broadly mentioned that crypto is a, is a value. It's it's a it's a representation of value digitally, right? And when we talk about value, there's a couple different ways. If we just relate it to money. That we that we typically talk about it, and uh, I know we talked about this on a different podcast. But you have a store of value, uh, which is that I put my value somewhere, and I can retrieve it later, and it's maintained its value, right? So if I put a dollar into a, a you know under my mattress and I pull it out, and next year, and it's now worth ninety five cents in purchasing power, it, it's a store of value. It only went down a certain percentage. But um, it's not as good as maybe gold, which you know I, I had a um, I had a dollar's worth of gold today, and now it's worth a dollar and two cents. So it's actually gone up, and it's actually kept pace with inflation. So you know, gold is a superior store of value. But the idea is that I want to I want to be able to access that value later on. Then, uh, from a money perspective, we have what's called unit of account, which is that we price products and services in that currency. Right. Uh, so, you know, we don't price uh, homes in bushels of corn or in, you know, uh, pounds of sand. We, we price it in dollars or euros or different currencies. Then there is what we call medium of exchange, which is using it to actually purchase products or services. Right. So I, I, I send you uh, dollars and you give me something back. Right. An iPod, as an example. Um, so those are kind of the three parts of the triangle when I think about money, right? Sort of the, the main definitions of it. And uh, so in order for you to actually have adoption, you have to have characteristics of that in order for um, the, I think, the world to start validating that what you have is, is, a, uh, is a real, I guess, valuable uh, I guess I, I want to say asset, but you know, I, I, some some people get charged and say, "Was well, that really true?" Um, so, you, you in order to get there, right? You, you, the, the question becomes: Well, what is it going to take for people to um, start using it as one, three, or all all of the above? Right? Do you do you agree that's kind of a way to measure, um, you know? It's adoption that we're actually seeing adoption, whether or not it's being used. Exactly, and 
this is one area where there seems to be a lot of disagreement is whether Bitcoin has one, some, or, or all of these, or any, or none of them, none of these characteristics. On the one hand, you have a lot of the pro-Bitcoin folks claiming that um, Bitcoin is now replacing gold as the major store of value in the world, mm-hmm. um, where you have pro-gold folks saying that Bitcoin is nothing like gold. Um, and again, a lot of it just depends on your perspective. I know um, there was a podcast that you turned me on to. Lex Friedman um, had a, a gentleman named Anthony Pompliano on there, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And his posi- he's a pro-Bitcoiner, and his position is is just that, that, that Bitcoin is replacing gold as the major store value. And he had some pretty compelling arguments for why that was the case. Um but then you listen to someone like Peter Schiff, who's a gold bug, who yep. has some pretty compelling arguments for why, you know, Bitcoin is nothing like gold. And yeah. a lot of that argument centers around the fact that gold gold has value outside of being a, a store of value, right? We we value gold as jewelry. Mm-hmm. We value it as a status symbol. Um, we use it in electronics, and, and there's other industrial uses for it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Bitcoin is nothing, it's it's a bunch of ones and zeros, and it can just evaporate overnight. And its value is just based on, I think, what we're going to talk about uh, maybe in the next section section is is maybe just this group illusion that it has value, mm-hmm. and that could just it, it could just go poof up yeah. in the air overnight, right? Um, and you know, I really think that's that's an interesting discussion. And I, I did a little bit of reading on that, and there's some good arguments that that's not necessarily true, or it's if it is true, it's not necessarily as big of a differentiating factor as some people make it out to be. Hmm. Uh, so that number one, um, the only real difference between gold and Bitcoin is that because gold has an industrial value, it, it's it's got a higher baseline price. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we decide tomorrow that gold is no longer going to be a store of value, the price will come down on it, but there's still going to be some demand in it for it for its industrial uses. Right. So maybe it goes from, I don't know, what's it running at? Like $2,000 an ounce now or something like that. I'm not real sure. Um, it, you know, it could drop down to $20 an ounce, but there's still going to be that baseline demand value. for it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Bitcoin if we decide that it's not a store of value, it's it's bottom is zero. Mm-hmm. And, but outside of that, um, there there is value backing Bitcoin. If nothing else, it's just in the philosophy, which we talked about already, the right. philosophy of decentralization, of uh, giving people the liberty to conduct financial transactions um, out from under the thumb or the, 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 the watchful eye of our government, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, Another aspect to that, though, that I that I heard in another podcast, um, Tyler Cowen uh, was on a podcast, and he was they were discussing whether Bitcoin is doomed to go to zero, and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't a very long long discussion. But I'll I'll link to the transcript transcript of that podcast. But the guest that he was on with, um, I've got it in the notes. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, who the podcast was with, but they were saying that Bitcoin is essentially fiat money because it doesn't have that hard, 
hard backing. Okay. Okay. And the reason for that is, yes, there's only a limited amount of Bitcoin that's going to get produced. What is it, like 21 million Bitcoins? 21 million, yep. Yeah. But when you expand when you expand your focus beyond just Bitcoin and you look at the entire crypto market, because it's so easy to create new cryptos. Yep. And um, that basically is the equivalent of a government just being able to run a printing press. Mm. Right. So when you look at Bitcoin plus Ethereum plus Cardano plus Dogcoin or however you say it, or, you know, all these other cryptos out there and the ease with which we can create new ones, there's really an unlimited supply of cryptos, hmm. um, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Now in this, um, Oh, John Cochran was the gentleman's name that the podcast was with. So John Cochran's stance was that uh, Bitcoin is essentially just a fiat currency. It's gonna, it has all the same problems as a fiat currency. Um, Tyler Cowen had admitted that originally he thought it was just a fiat currency, but as he's learned more about it, he's switching his view. Um, so here you go. You have two two well-respected economists with different opinions on this. Yeah. And I think uh, you know only time's going to tell how that works out. Yeah, but I thought that was a uh, I thought that was a really interesting conversation. So when we talk about hard money versus soft money, hard money versus fiat money, and the problems with the fiat money, like we mentioned with the MMTers and their unlimited printing printing press, you know, again, a lot of it's just perspective. Yeah, you know, is is Bitcoin going to gain such a dominant place in the market that it's that these altcoins, the competing cryptocurrencies, are just not going to be able to stand up against it? You know, so yeah. it'd become like a situation where Bitcoin is gold, Ethereum is like silver, right? They coexist, but there's definitely still a strong market for both. Or does it become a situation where there's just so many cryptos out there and so many total coins avail- available that the price just gets driven down? Um, similar to just that uh, that unlimited printing press that we talked about with the fiat currencies. Well. Yeah, and I think it's the right question to ask. And what's different about uh, traditional physical fiat currencies versus uh, the the cryptos is that we can run those experiments and see how the uh, the market participants react. And and actually, if you look at the forks of Bitcoin that happened in 2017, where um, and for those who aren't aware of what a, a fork is, it's it's actually a term that the developers uh, use to describe where you have an instance of the blockchain that is then changed in some way. So that the code is changed um, and and you now run that the separate code. So there, there's a history there that looks very similar, right? Because you're using the, the um, all of the blockchain history that existed up until a certain moment in time. And then you, you change from that moment in time going forward. So you have what you can have what's called a soft fork or a hard fork. A soft fork means you have compatibility, backwards compatibility. Um, a hard fork means you've you've completely separated. And you so you had these forks in uh, 2017 where you had different members of the of the Bitcoin community that th- saw a future for the token and they they differed. Um, one of them said, we want this to remain sort of hard money, slow money, safe money. Uh, another group said, we really want this to be more transactional. So, um, you know, one group I would argue was very much, let's make this a store of value. Another group said, no, let's make this a medium of exchange because we want it to be quick and fast and easy to use. And so they, they broke. 
And then the medium exchange people then further um, forked into these various groups. And so that's why if you go on to sites like coinmarketcap.com, you can see different uh, versions of Bitcoin. You'll, you'll see Bitcoin Cash. Uh, you'll see Bitcoin Gold. Uh, I th- there's, I think at this point, probably a few other versions of it, but they're, they're kind of the, they were forked off of, um, a Bitcoin in, in 2017 and, and the year after or so. And, and so what does that mean? What did that tell us? There was a lot of apprehension, uh, from people of the community about what was going to happen when that fork happened and which of those two versions of Bitcoin we're going to, we're going to take hold. And, you know, four years on, uh, if you just look at price alone and trading volume and usage, you, what you see is that Bitcoin has retained its value and it's retained its all of its network effects, its developer network effects. All of those effects have, re, have remained. Whereas I think with the Bitcoin cash, um, now it, it's a, other adoption metrics may have achieved the goal. But it's just from a pure price perspective, it's um, nowhere need. I, to give you some pers- some thoughts on there, I think when they split, let's say they were both at parity. They were, you know, each each token was worth about a thousand dollars, right? Now Bitcoin, I think latest is trading between forty and fifty k. I think Bitcoin Cash is still maybe at a thousand dollars. So you've seen a vast divergence in the community and what they support. So. You kind of ask the question when Tyler Cohen and, and the other economists that you mentioned, they say, well, you know, it's just like it's just like fiat currencies where they can just be spun up and then spent. Well, one difference is that the community gets to decide, right? And and they're absolutely right. I mean, there's very little work to actually copy over the code base. Most of these tokens, 99% of them are um, open source code. And you can get that code and, and change it. So Litecoin, as an example, that was taken by a former engineer at Coinbase. He took the, the, the Bitcoin code and made some changes so that it could be lightning fast. That's kind of the Litecoin <laughs> naming convention. And, um, and he created a new network and he got some, some adoption of it. it happened to be, um, you know, sold on Coinbase at the time, which didn't have any tokens. So that kind of helped. Um, but. People can decide which networks they want to support. So the question is: doesn't become what your what? Uh, how many tokens can we just spin up with? Um, uh, you know, the, this idea that we can just print more tokens. It's do those tokens accrue network effects? And I think this is what we talk about when we talk about the con- conditions for crypto to be adopted. It's it's you've got those three definitions of of value or money. Uh, again, medium exchange, unit of account, store of value. And then you have the digital side of it, which is network effects. What are those networks that would actually adopt this, this, this token, um, and, and be used? Cause that, that to me maps really cleanly onto the digital space, which is where all of these cryptos exist, right? If, if there is no internet, you don't have crypto. Uh, well, and that's simply because you don't have the processing power to do the cryptology, um, it just it just isn't scalable without it, right? So, um, I I don't think their argument is holding water over time, in my opinion, uh, and and that's that's because the early experiments aren't are, are basically telling us that 
when people choose networks, they buy into those networks and they don't change. And I think part of that is a political, it's like a, a political financial philosophy. You know, if you, if you talk to a Bitcoin maximalist or an Ethereum maximalist, they, they sound very religious in their convictions um, about sound money or about programmable money in the case of Ethereum. So you, you, you have some of that. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I see that as, as being a mirror running in parallel to what you see for adoption of technologies on the internet, uh, with, with people that, um, how they use different technologies, how they refer to sites, how they refer to sort of their digital being. Um, I, I think that's part of what makes these things, um, adoptable, um, is that sort of that mindset of, of at least the initial early adopters of those people that are are willing to be ad, you know adhere to a philosophy say that it's the philosophy that matters that's going to take us from zero to one in the words of Peter Thiel um, that's what that's what has to be there um, and and I think there's other sites too right uh, where you, you obviously need the internet backbone you need the the processing backbone um, so computer chips have to be cheap enough. Um, you need access to the actual internet, however that happens. Um, and then you need people that are willing to, um, I guess, have faith in something new and a new technology. Like those to me are sort of the cornerstones of what you actually need to adopt, uh, adopt crypto beyond things being priced in crypto or merchants accepting it. It's, it's people, you know, having that demand. So it's part of it. I mean, is it, does it just come down to, they need visibility into what our governments are doing with their fiat currency? That's, that's a good question. And that's one of the advantages to crypto is that it's so transparent, uh, transparent while at the same time being secure because of the public key, private key, uh, implementations on it. And uh, just the computing power that would be required to go back and try to change the blockchain mm-hmm. uh, to to change a transaction, uh, which a lot of technical stuff there. But it, my understanding is not to get too technical, too deep into the weeds here. Basically, after about six blocks have been created on the Bitcoin network, the cost, the way the blockchain is set up, because each block depends on the previous block. To go back six blocks to try to change a transaction that was already recorded would require an enormous amount of computing power. Yeah. And there's a new block is created roughly every 10 minutes. So you're talking after an hour, your transaction is pretty much secure. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the great innovations um, of, of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, to, to your point, I, th- I think you're right. I think... You know, we were we were looking at the the argument that Bitcoin is essentially a fiat currency, based off the idea that everyone is going to be willing to widely adopt um, new cryptocurrencies as they come out. But we know that's not true, right? You know, not everyone is like us, where we like to sit there and tinker with with these types of things, right? Some people they're just going to learn how to use Bitcoin. And that's going to be it. They're not yeah. going to care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, I figured out how to use this. Stop telling me to start using something else, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's going to be VHS versus Betamax, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something better may come out. But, you know, if, if you know, the porn industry has adopted VHS, then guess what? VHS is there, right? So right. it's going to be the same thing. I think when a lot of merchants start accepting Bitcoin, 
um, then it's just going to get entrenched. So, you know, maybe we, we expand our definition of what the money supply is in crypto beyond just the 21 million Bitcoins. You know, perhaps we include Ethereum and something else in there, you know, the same way we you know, we, we have in the precious metals market, right? We have gold and silver, and I guess to a lesser extent, platinum and copper, but there's still a finite amount of all those. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, so we just explain, expand the definition. So we've got the, the finite amount of, of Bitcoin, the finite amount of Ethereum, and then the finite amount of whatever else, Cardano or mm-hmm. dog coin, whatever. Right. Um, so we look at, start looking at our supply from that perspective. Um, now, one thing that I think is interesting when we're talking about adoption is one of the knocks on Bitcoin is that it it doesn't serve well as a medium of exchange because the network is so slow. Right. And I know when I bought some things with Bitcoin, it's like you, you sit there and watch and you watch and you watch. You know, it has to get a certain number of confirmations before the the merchant will accept it, and and uh, and it can take you know upwards of an hour sometimes. Right. And you know, obviously, you can't buy a pizza or a cup of coffee if you're you know if you're gonna have to stand there in starbucks for an hour waiting for your confirmation yeah um so in in the anthony pompliano podcast with with lex friedman he mentioned that look at don't look at bitcoin as a currency that you use for everyday purchases look at it as gold and look at in the same way that gold was used as a hard backing for the u.s dollar early on there's going to be something that's going to come in and sit on top of Bitcoin, sort of a second layer, mm-hmm. so that Bitcoin will be that hard currency backing whatever this other thing is. Right. And that people will be spending that other thing in their um, everyday transactions. Right. Yep. But, so we're going to essentially end up with, you know, what whatever thing that thing is called. We'll, we'll just call it, you know, I don't know, everyday Bitcoin spending money. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's going to be backed by by Bitcoin the same way the dollar was originally backed by gold. And because of that, because there's a finite amount of Bitcoin, there's only going to be a finite amount of this other currency. Yeah. This, this Bitcoin everyday spending currency. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting. But when we get to that point, if it happens, that's going to make adoption of Bitcoin much easier. Sure. Because people are going to know that they can now walk into Starbucks. They can order their triple venti caramel crappuccino and pay for it and be gone in the same amount of time it takes the credit cards to process their transaction uh, right yeah so yeah so but in, until we have that though on uh, you know how much adoption can we expect yeah i mean uh, it's it's a great question the, the reason I, I that model really resonates with me is it's sort of how i think about the the technology model where you you have sort of you have hardware layers you have software layers you've got network layers um, you've got the interoperability layers where you have the protocols that sit there and communicate um, allow us to communicate across the technologies and, and platforms and, and so when I think about layers of value in a digital world, it seems logical to me that they would follow a similar uh, layered approach, right? So you've got, I think the pomp argument is that there is a layer that's extremely secure. So what does that mean? Well, it's, it's difficult to corrupt, right? That's really what we mean. And it's difficult to change. Um, and why is that important? Well, if you're going to have digital money, digital value, you want it hard to uh, obviously you want it uncorruptible 
because you don't want to have to worry about someone coming and stealing your funds. And then the hard to change part is more about the the monetary policy, right? Uh, where you don't want to have to worry about inflation. Uh, you don't want to worry about your money losing value, right? And and you know the the physical digital uh, sort of parallel to that today is just having your money in a bank, right? If if banks were offering 10, 12 percent uh, for your funds, you, you deposit it there, you get a nice rate of return. Um, and it's safe, right? You don't worry about showing up there unless you've got millions and millions of dollars. In, in most jurisdictions, in your mind, you're thinking it's safe. Um, there's, a, there's a whole layer of complexity behind that that people don't seem to think of that I, I always bring up whenever this comes out. You know, During the financial crisis of 08 and 09, people in Greece went to their bank accounts and could only take out 50 euros. It didn't matter if you had 50,000 euros, 100,000 euros, you were restricted on the money. And that came directly from the government. The money that's at a bank, it is legally yours in, in, in a general sense, but actually the bank owns it and they have an IOU with you, right? Um, and so that's, that's the complexity that's kind of been taken away with banking. But there's a safety side of it. I don't have to worry about my, my funds being necessarily taken away unless I'm in a, uh, the wrong jurisdiction. I mean, if you talk to people that have been in places like Venezuela, Argentina, parts of Africa where they've seen their money just taken away or government just goes into banks and actually takes the funds out, um, you start to see an argument for a, a, a mechanism like Pomp's talking about, which is my layer one is my gold. You can't touch my gold. It's uncorruptible and it's unaccessible to, to anybody but me. And um, and then you have that monetary policy that I want to feel is is secure. I know what it's going to be like in a year, in five years, in 10 years. Um, so I, the layered methodology makes a lot of sense to me. Um, now, that's not to say what, what Pomp, I guess, I'm not sure he really did in that podcast. Perhaps he did. You know, there's, there's questions about the future of what that looks like. So You've got the POMP model, which is a layered on approach. Then you could have more of an Ethereum model, uh, which says, listen, we don't just want good sound monetary policy if we can't do programmable, interesting things with it. And that's what the Ethereum mentality is, right? Is that we, we, money is more when we can program it, when we can bring it into the digital space in a new way. So Ethereum adds on a virtual machine for processing logic. That doesn't exist in Bitcoin. The Bitcoin code, from what I understand, is extremely, I mean, it's, it's like 1,500 lines of code. It's, it's really not that big. Um, and um, the uh, Ethereum, I think, is, is, is going to be much larger, right? You've got more code that you're going you're gonna to need to run as a miner. Um, and, and, be, and part of it, you have to have a virtual machine that can actually process the logic. So... There, and, and you've already seen that. I, I think Nick Carter's commented on that. I think also on the Lex Friedman podcast, sort of this idea that in Ethereum, the monetary policy is a little bit uh, looser, right? And, and in fact, I think right now they're actually going to where they're, they're, they're going to a proof of stake mechanism. They're actually going to reduce the supply uh, that was kind of open-ended. Um, they're going to reduce that down going forward. So there, there's less, uh, there's more variation, right, in how they're approaching monetary policy. Uh, but that is one way that you could you could look at sort of the the approach is more we want programmable money, we want more of that flexibility. We're gonna we're gonna include it all in a, a single network rather than layers on. Um, I I don't know that 
the layer on still makes the most sense to me. I think, and and maybe that's because I'm more of the liber that's my libertarian mindset speaking to me, where I like the hard money, I like that it's not accessible, I like the consistency. Uh, the programmability of it is is a little bit frightening. Um, so, and and I think what we're talking about is all the risks to adoption of these these things, right? Um, because on one hand, we just talked about sort of the things that you need, which is various layers or or a, a good user experience that allows you to to access the the protocol in, in a in a profoundly useful way. Um, then you have, uh, but then you have the other side of it, which is like, well, okay, if, if if this stuff is so great, it prevents governments from getting to it. It um, it prevents uh, people from from making it corruptible. Uh, then you know, why aren't people just running to it, right? And and I, you know, the risks of adoption. Well, I mean, I think you could have governments coming out and and looking to ban it and using guns and swords to prevent people from using it because I see it as a threat. Um, I think you have sort of the basic risk, which is that, uh, people don't actually find it that useful, right? You and I may say, listen, we really care. We, we care about the basement. We care about inflation and other people may say, well, that's just the cost of living in a good country. I, I want to live in Germany. I want to live in Canada. I want to live in the United States. I want to take care. I want to enjoy the benefits those countries offer. And you know what? I'm inflation and debasement. That's just part of the bargain. Um, yeah, you, know, you have another side of it, which is that the the user experience do, never does escape velocity, where it makes it as as secure, but also easy to use. Um, I think those are all real. I mean, at this point, legit. I don't know. What do you think about those risks? I think the legitimate risks to talk about. Oh, definitely, and one thing I've been thinking about is when we talk about Bitcoin being that first layer of hard currency, so to speak, or, or first layer of commodity that is the backing for a hard currency. One question that comes to mind is that in order to issue the currency, that second layer, whoever's issuing that currency has to have a stockpile of that commodity, the first layer. Right. So the U.S. government couldn't issue dollars against all the gold in the world. They could only issue dollars against the gold held by the U.S. government. Because the idea is, is that, that that dollar that you have is just a note that gives you right of ownership to a certain amount of gold so that you could walk into the government with your $100 bill and say, I'm exchanging this, give me my gold. Right. So in doing that, are we creating, are we going to end up creating the centralized authorities in the Bitcoin world? Yeah. We're saying that Bitcoin is supposed to be fighting against. Right. Um, that's, and I, I, you're right. I don't remember Anthony Pompliano really going into a lot of detail on how how that system would work, uh, but that's a question that I have. Yeah. Um, so in in making Bitcoin more accessible, are we essentially making it more like a government currency with some sort of a central bank, a central authority, uh, you know, mandating how much currency uh, or mandating how the currencies that that second level currency is being used? Yeah. And if that's the case, that authority, yeah, the amount of Bitcoin in existence is limited to 21 million, but that authority that owns, you know, say 10 million Bitcoin that is issuing that second level currency, they can always, they can always fiddle with the exchange rate. Yeah. Right. You know, they could start off saying it's a, it's a one-to-one or, you know, yeah. one, one of my whatever. 
is worth uh, you know one bitcoin but then they could come back later and say well we want to expand the money supply so it we're changing the exchange rate yeah that one that one is now worth only half a bitcoin right so then you end up with an inflationary aspect to it so again we're right back into this situation where we need to depend on the benevolence of some central authority yeah hopefully that authority would take a page from Bitcoin and they would have some sort of a mechanism in place to where, you know, 51% of the network or 75% of the network or whatever would have to agree to that change. Yeah. So hopefully there would be a mechanism in place. Um, but who knows? And and what if it's a government that, that establishes that second level currency? What if the U.S. government comes in, buys up a ton of Bitcoin and then starts issuing, you know, bit dollars or something, you know, and then they put pressure on banks and other instant and other businesses and financial institutions to start accepting bit dollars. Yeah. So then we're, we're almost right back in the same spot we started in. Yeah. And that actually gets to, I think more of the existential crisis challenge for, for crypto, which is that the, the people that are so supportive of it today, the maximalists, will tell you, uh, I mean, that's part of the adoption requirement, right? And, you know, if you just take a step back, you think about any kind of adoption early on, you think of the the adoption curves, you have these early adopters. These are people that are so fascinated by technology changes that they're willing to pay pretty much any price that they can afford to get access to new technology and try it out. They're the ones that put on Google Glass glasses before anybody else does, uh, they bought the iPhone when it was basically just a, a really novel piece of technology, but it was a terrible phone. They, those people have to drive that early part. And then there's a, there's kind of a, that's like the one to 2%. And then you have kind of the early, early phases. Uh, we have three to 5% start to adopt. And at some point between the 10 and 15%, you have this chasm that you have to, you have to jump over, right? Um, and that's, that's where you go. You start going from early adopters to more of the mainstream adoption of people that are willing to, um, get the other benefits out of a technology, uh, and they're more risk sensitive. And if, you know, what you just described, so let's just say these, these games start to be played and, you know, uh, an entity starts to buy up a crypto that's, that's heavily valued today. They start using it to, um, uh, do exactly what you're saying where you're, you're doing different types of pegging on the, the exchange. And we start to resolve back to a, um, a more of a fiat looking world. Do the, do the people that are the early adopters that have to start drive it. And so we can, we can jump the chasm. Do they stop, start, start to lose their enthusiasm and their ad, their adherence to some of these philosophies because they just realize it's too difficult to achieve. And, and I, I think that's a, you know, cause everyone gets so excited about price. If they're in the market, they've bought some they're like, Oh, it's gone up. I'm, you know, I'm making money. Right. Um, that's, that's fine. I, I don't have any problem with that. I think that's good. Uh, but then there's another side of it. That's like, you have to have an under, an under, um, uh, some kind of principles that sort of prop up this belief. Um, and if those principles begin to be, you know, knocked down, uh, either by, you know, monetary policy becomes too loose, you, you can't figure out how to vote 
right? You can't figure out how to make any changes at all. It becomes stagnant or it becomes cornered. And, and I, I know anybody who listens to this who's been in the space a while will, will, you know, they can provide all these, these things about like, well, the game theory says you can never bring it down. Or you have the, the haters that say, listen, you can do a Sybil attack, which is a 51% attack. It's actually not that expensive and people will do it. You know, that's all well and good. Those things could happen and those risks do exist. It's just, it's also part of it. Like there's, there's these other ones that are more meta, which is about the adoption curve, which is about the people actually wanting it uh, that you have to get into. Um, and I'm not sure that um, it, it, part of me is is wondering if if we'll reach that point. Uh, you you could have another 10 years of price movement going higher without it ever actually reaching the adoption phase of the masses. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a real risk because again, people don't see the value. They they make different arrangements. All of us who think that value and liberty matter are actually in the minority, and and through. These, this experiment, we actually get to see what, what's the, how large this community is. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And you mentioned it, you, or you've used the word experiment or experimentation a, a couple times. And I think that's one of the main points to keep in mind is this is an experiment. It, and it's the first, it's the first step of the experiment, I guess. Yeah. Um, to see how we can do this. So, Bitcoin may not end up being the answer, but I think we're going to at least learn a lot from it yeah. so that the next generation of cryptos that come along are going to be even better. So, yep. and, and that's one thing to consider if you're thinking about adopting Bitcoin is, uh, you know, y- y- you need to keep an eye on the market because you don't know when that better thing is going to come along. Yeah. Um, so, well, that's, and I think that's hard for a lot of people because, it's it's a technical space, uh, you know. The memes. If if you're younger and you're on Twitter and you're seeing these memes for these new tokens and they're promising <clears throat> all kinds of uh, utopia type of technology, and you go, <clears throat> excuse me, oh my gosh, I can't miss out on this next token. It's going to solve everything that Bitcoin does. Well, you also have to realize that there's. There's a lot of people that are frustrated with certain aspects of Bitcoin, but at the you know at the on the other side of it, they're not willing to to coalesce around a new token necessarily, right? Um, and and so until they are, right, that's the other side of it. Until you have critical mass that moves into a new direction. Um, now, my personal opinion is that I, I do believe that uh, Bitcoin um, has its it has a certain place. And I, I kind of, I, I think here I really do agree with sort of Pomp's viewpoint of that. It's, it's a store of value uh, that, that really, it's mathematically provable. It has properties that make it very valuable in this space in a way that uh, no other cryptos to date have done that exact sort of feat. And the fact that it is relatively simple code um is is actually it's a it's a feature not a bug to use the the terminology, and so I I do think it has um uh it has a it has a leg in on on that aspect of life, but that's not to say that these other cryptos like Ethereum and I'll just, I'll pick on that one uh, can't start to eat away at what we understand to be store of value, right? It's it's I'm not sure it's it's um. At least I haven't read anything that, that convinces me that says, well, there's no way in which you can be all three. 
you can optimize for medium of exchange, uh, store of value, and unit of account. Um, it's particularly in the digital space where I, we're still figuring out the laws of digital, right? I mean, and, and the, the easiest way I'll say that is how do we map our laws of, of communication and speech to the digital space, right? Where we talk about a street corner and now if you're on Twitter, you can have a million followers and say whatever you want. Um, we're still trying to figure out how to navigate that. And so it's it's not clear to me at all that the the concept of value moves cleanly from the physical to the digital space. And so all of our analogies for store of value, for, for digital gold, for everything as we describe Bitcoin may not hold up over time. Uh, but I, I would say again, right now, it seems, I mean, that's there's nothing wrong with putting a little bit of money. And you know, same thing I tell everybody, listen, I think everyone should have a little exposure to the space at an absolute minimum and put in very, very little to start. Just get some exposure. Put in $10, put in $20, open a Coinbase account and just do a little. That, that gives you a sense for, for what this space is. Um, and it doesn't, doesn't imply a large risk uh, from a capital perspective, which I think scares a lot of people. And I, I know I, I've, I'm talking to so many people right now that are interested in getting into it and they say, well, I'm frightened. I said, why are you frightened? Well, if I put all my money in, I lose it. I said, well, don't put all your money in. <laughs> you know, I mean, how about this? Put very little. Stop Stop being logical, Paul. There we go. There we go. Yeah, it's either all or nothing. It's all or nothing, right? YOLO. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we've talked about a lot today, and I, I, I know we've jumped around quite a bit, but uh, I guess... You know, we, we've kind of talked about some of the risks. We've we've talked about the reasons, uh, our reasons why we think this is important. I know we touched a little bit on the conditions for adoption. I I, I don't know that we've fleshed out as much as we could, um, but we're probably I know for kind of our first Bitcoin crypto discussion, we may be reaching a kind of a pausing point. What do you think? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, looking at our our outline that we have here, I think we've covered just about half of what we thought we were yeah. going to cover. So. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's a good, good place to stop. There's still a few more risks to adoption. Um, but we can, it can pick those up in a part two. Yep. Um, overall, I think it was a good discussion. Uh, like I mentioned, I've, since I started doing some research for this podcast, I've, my idea of Bitcoin has changed. Sure. I'm still not a hundred percent sold on it being a financial asset, but I like the philosophy behind it. Yeah. Uh, so I've started uh, doing a bit of investing and like you recommended, I, not much, very small amounts. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that, uh, now that I'm doing this, I'm paying more attention to it and I'm learning more about it. And so if anything, like you said, putting some, some small nominal amount of money in it might, uh, might get people or get, get people, yeah, to start just paying more attention to it and understanding it more. And that could speed adoption Yeah, when people start to see the value in it. So I think that's great advice. And a Coinbase account is super easy to open. Yep. I've had one for years, but I, I really don't use it that much. Um, but I've started using it again. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on the... I, I wouldn't say I'm on the hype train, but I'm I'm on board, and I would like to see cryptos make it. I would like to see um, some good competition in the marketplace against the fiat currencies that are dominating the world. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I like the competition against the monetary policy of our governments that, that spend. And, you know, I think if you've listened to any of these episodes, it's easy to conclude um, that we're, <laughs> and I think it's accurate, we're, we're not huge fans of government spending. But I'll, I'll add some nuance to that. From, from my perspective, it's the frustration and realization that much of the spending is wasted. And you never know which, which of it is. Exactly. And, and yeah. you don't get outcomes that you look at and go, this is a fantastic outcome. And I, I know for those who are, are more pro big government spending, they'll say, well, that's just the cost of doing business. And I, I think I, I, I struggle with that concept that uh, we should just accept that it's the cost of doing business when it's our resources. Um, it's, it's our future that that is being uh, bargained with. And so uh, I love the idea of competition that forces governments to be better at their job. Uh, and that, let's face it, governments don't make it easy to move around to different governments, right? I mean, if you want to leave the United States, you have to pay a healthy, healthy tax. Uh, and they're, they're not the only country that does that. And then, of course, if you want to enter a country, it's very easy if you're wealthy and it's very hard if you're poor. Uh so they, they don't make it easy for us to move around, right? The world isn't designed that way. Uh, and I think cryptos offer an opportunity for us to push back on the governments and, and force them into having better fo- uh, philosophy and better policy for all of us. Uh, and that sounds utopia, but competition is what makes us better. Um, at least, you know, that's, that's my particular worldview. So I, I'm also a big fan. I also want to see this succeed. Um, not necessarily to bring down governments to put, put the right amount of pressure on the best ones to do better. Um, and, you know, particularly on the monetary policy side where I, I feel like, uh, you know, political squabbles have taken the place of good thinking. Yeah. So, yeah. And I just remember, I mean, one of the points behind us doing the podcast is that we feel like knowledge and the ability to think critically is that's a key component to Liberty, right? Free thinking, uh, being able to cut through the noise to find the signal uh, and helping you have better conversations with people. And, you know, when it comes to something like Bitcoin, understanding it and understanding the possibilities of it is that's something that you can put into action. I mean, let's just look at some of the proposals that are out there. I know uh, some of the proposals on the wealth tax included restrictions on moving your country, your money outside of the U S mm-hmm. right. That way that would keep people from avoiding the wealth tax. Um, and I know California, I don't know if it's still around, but at one point they were kicking around a law that would, even if you leave the state of California for something like the next 10 years, you still have to pay California income tax on a certain portion of your income with the idea being that, you know, you you started to build up that base while you're in California, so you still owe them money. You know, for example, so Joe Rogan started his podcast in California. He's moved out, but under this bill or this law, California would still be able to tax him, yeah. even though he's in Texas now. Right. And you know, just think about that, right? It's like no matter where you go, some government's going to be sticking its hand into your bank account and pulling money out of it, yeah. and there's nothing you can do about right. it. So when you have a decentralized currency that these governments can't control, you can give yourself freedom from that, uh, from that intrusion. Mm-hmm. And, and give them competition to act better. I mean, the yeah. reason that they're doing that is them saying, listen, we need these resources to operate. 
right? And we have all these these um, programs that we want to fund. Uh, but then, you know, California probably is, is one of the, the better example examples when you actually look at how they spend money. You can certainly question whether or not it's being effective. Uh, and I, I think a lot of people that are honest with themselves would say at least a large portion of it is not. And so um, you you need to give them competition because the more power that they have to enforce these types of rules, like the ones you just mentioned, um, that means that they, they they don't they can just go out through fiat, not the money, but through power, and and take what they what they deem that they need rather than having to compete for it. Yeah, and I think. Um Joe Rogan and Elon Musk, I think, too, had mentioned that they didn't like the direction the state was going, so they left. But under a law like that, right, California would still be able to pull money out to support programs that you didn't support, and that was the reason for you leaving. Right. Right. So essentially, it neutralizes the your ability to vote with your feet. Yeah. And... And I, I, I don't agree with that. I, just I don't either. That's, that's a huge problem. And like I said, you know, the more you know, the more you understand how the system works. And the, the more you know about the alternatives, right, the better off you're going to be. You're just going to put yourself in a position where you're less dependent on the politicians and you can control you can have more control over your own life. And that, that starts with knowledge, yeah. right? Knowledge is power, right? To over you, to use an overused cliche, yeah. but I think it's really true. So right. hopefully you got, you got something out of this podcast, at least a, a good introduction to some of the philosophy behind Bitcoin. And you can start looking at it uh, in a different aspect, right? Yep. Not just a financial thing, but more of a, a thing that like Paul has said, gives competition to the government We'll maybe start, hopefully, start holding some folks accountable, but we'll also free you from uh, some of the restraints on your your liberty that the government has uh, is imposing on us by having these controls on how we can, what we can do with our money, how we can spend it, where we can take it, and what we can do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's uh, let's get more people educated, have better conversations about money and value and. Uh, Spread the word. I think the more this spreads, the, the better chance we have of getting that mainstream adoption and, and putting more more power in people's hands to to challenge their governments, uh, which is a which is a real plus. So we thank you for joining us today. Um, as Scott said, hopefully you got something out of this conversation. Maybe you learned something. Um, importantly, we're really about communication, which is about taking these complex ideas and having discussions that you can then take along to other people and have better discussions and give you the kind of tools and resources to do that. If uh, you got something out of that, we'd love to hear from you. Um, check us out wherever you're listening to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher. Go to mentallyunscripted.com. Let us know your thoughts. And uh, we'll talk with you real soon. Till then, take care.